Jeremiah chapters 3 and 4. Our focus this morning will be on 3.19 through 4.4. I'll be reading 3.1 through 4.4. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares Yahweh? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. Yahweh said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares Yahweh. And Yahweh said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares Yahweh. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares Yahweh. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against Yahweh your God, and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree. And that you've not obeyed my voice, declares Yahweh. Return, O faithless children, declares Yahweh. For I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares Yahweh, They shall no more say, The ark of the covenant of Yahweh. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, declares, in those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. 
I said, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten Yahweh their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are Yahweh our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in Yahweh our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, the flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against Yahweh our God. We and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God. If you return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as Yahweh lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says Yahweh to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on our souls for every instance of half-hearted repentance, divided, fake allegiance, presumptuously returning to you with sin cherished in our hearts thinking somehow we could manipulate or fool. Grant repentance, Father, or it will not be. In Christ's name, Amen. Here we have something of the inverse of those verses known as the Song of Solomon. In each instance, we have a poetic dialogue between the lover and the beloved. But here, as regards God's bride, covenant love is rotten. Versus in the Song of Solomon, it's coming into bloom. Now, the form of address has already been present since the beginning of chapter 3 where Yahweh speaks and addresses Judah with these questions. But now the 
form of poetic dialogue comes to the fore. Whereas in the Song of Solomon, there's some tension, but the mutual adoration of the lover and the beloved is what is prominent. Here, the tension is highlighted and you're left desiring for Israel to return to Yahweh. And 2, 1 through 4, 4 are all wed together as a unit. 2, 1 through verse 37 tell us what is to be repented of. 3, 1 through 11 expose the unacceptability of false repentance. 3, 12 through 18 call for true repentance. And now this morning in 3, 19 through 4, 4, we'll see it clarified what true repentance is. Once we finish listening in on this dialogue, still, we'll be wondering, is Israel's repentance true? Is her repentance that which Yahweh is pleading for here? Well, understand that this dialogue doesn't come in the form of a recording. This isn't an actual conversation that happened between Yahweh and Israel. This is imaginative. It is fictional. It's something like the vision of the burning, boiling pot that you see in chapter 1. It's like a parable. It's true, but it's not a recording. Its function is pedagogical. That is, it's meant to teach. So we begin this section that I said is wed together in chapter 2. Yahweh is rebuking Judah. And in chapter 3, the lines of questioning that are put forward, they're addressed to Judah at the beginning of chapter 3. And we see that Judah wants to return to Yahweh, but it's a presumptuous kind of return. It's a return without, verse 2, seeing. It is a Return wherein her pious words are empty, but her wicked deeds are full. Verse 5 of chapter 3. It's a return not with her whole heart, but one done in pretense. Chapter 3, verse 10. God calls on Jeremiah to see Israel's whoredom. At the tell of this. And whenever he does so, this begins in chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 6. Whenever the focus switches to Israel, you see that the point is so that, verse 10, you would note that Judah's sin is greater than Israel's. So although the focus is switched to Israel, in one sense, the focus remains Judah. And as Yahweh is pleading for Israel to return to Him in this dialogue we're we're looking at now, the dialogue is meant to press upon the reader. And we'll see it's meant to press upon Judah that her repentance be true. D.A. Carson writes, There is no alternative to repentance, no other way to experience the blessing of the Lord. 
The nature of repentance in Scripture precludes the nonsense of partial repentance or contingent repentance. Genuine repentance does not turn from one sin while safeguarding others. Partial repentance is as incongruous as partial pregnancy. Loyalty to God in selective areas is no longer loyalty but treason. To repent of disloyalty in select areas while preferring disloyalty in others is no repentance at all. God knows His children's fake cry. He's not fooled by it. It isn't met with tenderness and grace. It does not evade His anger. It elicits it. And so, as we come to the last sentences of of this passage, we note that this command to repent is laid upon Judah, not Israel. The point of this imagined conversation with Israel is something that God wants to say to Judah. And what He says is, Repent. The text opens with an expression of longing. How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations, and I thought you would call me my father, would not turn from following me. Here again, the anthropomorphic language is thick. And whenever that happens, we have to beware of misunderstanding it, taking it too far. We saw this earlier in chapter 3, verse 7, where God said that He thought Israel would return to Him after her whoredom. The picture there is not that God is unsure about the future. What's meant to be communicated is not that God doesn't know, but that Israel should know better. The point isn't that Yahweh is ignorant, but that Israel's foolish. After that, surely she would return. Now, anthropomorphic language simply means speaking of God in human terms. And we shouldn't be scared that that's the way these truths are communicated to us because human terms are all that we have. We don't speak goat. We understand everything in in reference to human terms, and this shouldn't scare us because we're made in the image of God, for one thing. But we shouldn't be shy of revelation, the revelation of the Father in human terms, any more than we should be afraid of the incarnation of the Son in human flesh. But we do need to understand that there's a metaphor that's being used here, and and we we shouldn't take it too far. The point of this longing as it's expressed here is to communicate the depth of the covenant love that was bestowed upon Israel and what would be expected in return. We're not to think of God as some hopeless romantic, despondent and heartbroken, longing for that that other person that completes him. God is not the lover of a romance novel or the romantic comedy. The 
point is simply you're told what God did and then what He expected in return. First, what did God's, God's love do? His covenant love to Israel. It set them among His sons. And now the metaphors are mixed, you see. We went from His lover to a son. And yet, whenever you read this in the original language, the you, how I would set you among my sons, the you there is feminine. And so then you're, now we're thinking of a daughter being set among sons. And we shouldn't stress out about sons who are the sons. Is this a gen- we start making too much of sons here as well. No, the point is that Israel had nothing. She had rights, she's earned, she's merited nothing. And here is this daughter being set among sons to receive an inheritance. She's being adopted. That's the picture here. She's merited nothing and she's been graciously, mercifully adopted to receive this inheritance. This inheritance is a heritage most beautiful or more strictly translated, it is the beauty of beauties. It's the same kind of language that we see concerning the song of Songs. It's that Hebrew way of emphasis where you just repeat the word. This beauty of beauty of all nations. This inheritance is an echo of Eden and an anticipation of new creation. Her inheritance is the earth made new. So that's what God did. What was expected? Surely, because of this, she would call him my father. Such covenant mercy should result in a relationship of reverence. Do you remember earlier we see Judah, Israel, in worshiping on those high places, referring to the Asherah and Baal, to, the, to wood and stone as my mother and my father. And God is saying, in light of my covenant mercy, surely I thought... You would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Well, now we turn back to the image of marriage. And Israel turned as a treacherous wife turns from her husband. She breaks her covenant vow made into her Redeemer and pursues lovers who are nothing like Him. There's no way to make sense of this kind of infidelity. There's no imperfection in God. There's no perfection to be found in these idols. There's nothing lacking in God and the idols she turns to are empty. And so now we find Israel weeping and pleading on the bare heights. So we turn in this dialogue from Yahweh to Israel. We don't initially get any of her words. We're just told about her words. We get a narrator's comment. She's weeping and she's pleading on the bare heights. Is this sorrow true or false? Is this real repentance 
Or is it just a display? Is it a show? Immediately we have only two clues. The where, bare heights, and the why. Because they've perverted their way. They've forgotten Yahweh, their God. First, the where. The bare heights are no doubt a reference to the high places. But why are they bare? Because the high places, so often you get the image that this, these would be groves up on top of a hill. If there weren't natural trees growing there, there were places where there were erected stones and there were these shaped trees, the Asherim, but now they're bare. Why are they bare? You remember whenever our attention was turned to Israel in the first place, we're told it was during the reign of King Josiah. And Josiah not only purged Judah of her idols, he made a a campaign against idolatry in the north as well. 2 Kings expounds on this at length, telling us how this fulfilled a prophecy made 300 years earlier. We read in 2 Kings 23, Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam. You remember Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom Israel after the split, set up that altar at Bethel so that people wouldn't return to Jerusalem for the feasts and thus defect to Judah. The altar that Jeroboam erected, we're told, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he, Josiah, pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of Yahweh that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told them, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking Yahweh to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. When we come to the account of this in Chronicles, it's significantly abridged into one sentence, but there you do have the positive aspect as well as the negative part involved. We read, Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve Yahweh their God. All his days they did not turn away from following Yahweh, the God of their fathers. The high places are bare because Josiah stripped them. Notice also something else. Did you catch that Josiah made them? Anyone who has children knows the difference between a child who's made to do something and a child who wants to do something. And then you're told that it happened all the days of Josiah. Everyone knows how a child behaves whenever mom and dad are present and when mom and dad are gone. So that's the where... 
She's weeping on the high places. And now the why. Because they've perverted their way, they have forgotten Yahweh their God. Or as Jeremiah put it earlier, because they've forsaken Him the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now if you found me leading one of my sons by the hand, and he's crying, you might ask, What's, what happened? And if I responded, he disrespected his mother. You might then be wondering, is he crying because of the sin? Or because his high places are about to be stripped bare? The disrespect is the sin which has led to the tears, but is it the sin that's being cried over or just its consequences? And likewise here, do you not notice there's a vagueness about the way these things are stated? So that you're wondering, why is Israel weeping and pleading on the high places? Whereas a wise father sniffs out the fake cry of his children... The church today is full of spiritual fathers who are ready to pronounce the smallest tear as evidence of the deepest conviction and repentance. Whenever they should follow suit very likely with the way Yahweh proceeds here, And just make further pleas for repentance. There are no physical responses. There are no visceral reactions. There are no emotional symptoms by which we may know whether or not repentance is true. That Israel is weeping and pleading now. Now that her High places have been stripped bare, that it's now that she's weeping and pleading, does give us reason for pause. Recall Thomas Brooks' statement that though true repentance be never too late, yet late repentance is seldom true. Tears are no guide. But tears that proceed immediately after the sin are more likely to be true than those that come after the rod. Sinner, are you sorrowful for your sin? Or only the bitter taste that it's left in your mouth? Do you weep because the grove of your idolatry has been stripped bare? Or is it because you've truly seen that your idols are empty and Yahweh is the God of all glory? Israel's actions here provide no conclusive evidence whether or not her repentance is true, but Yahweh's further plea makes us think that though Israel is sorrowful, she's not truly repentant yet. This weeping, this pleading is met with this. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. Very brief response consisting only of a plea and a promise. The plea, return. The promise, I will turn to you. Return, 
I will turn. You remember in chapter 3, whenever we saw Israel referred to as that faithless one, and and again described as faithless Israel, that the word for faithless there has as its root the same word translated return. Faithless one means turned away one. So the command then is return, turned away Israel, and I will heal your turning away. Or perhaps the King James does better than any well-known translation. Return ye backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings. So Israel's pleading isn't met with instant pardon, but with further pleas. And the point isn't that you have to repent really good. Double down on your repentance. The point is that it is not a display of repentance that is met with pardon, but repentance that's met with pardon. But do you not see an irony in this as well? Return and I will heal your turning away. Wouldn't you expect that it would be nice if he healed the turning away first so that we could return? If we have hearts that hate God, and God promises, if you love me, I will heal your hating so that you love me, wouldn't it be nice if he did the healing first before... But notice that the promise isn't explicitly stated as a consequent. We just assume that. There's not a so that in between. There's not an, even an and in between. It's not return, O faithless sons, so that I will heal your faithlessness. It's not a return and I will heal your faithlessness. It's just return and I will heal your faithlessness. We don't know the connection between the two statements. Indeed, we might suspect, I think rightly so, because this is poetic and we understand that the chief rhyme structure of Hebrew poetry is parallelism, that these are two ways of saying the same thing, that these things relate as two sides of a coin, if you will. If this plea is ever heeded, it is because of this promise that he will, if, if there's ever any turning, it's because he's promised to turn. We'll explore more fully the relationship between this plea and this promise. But for now, notice this. This is critical in determining whether or not repentance is true. Is your weeping a response to seeing the barrenness of your high places without? Or is it the result of something being planted within? Is your repentance primarily motivated? Is the moving force of your repentance, repentance, nothing more than a loss outside? Or is it the result of a gain inside? Israel's response to this is more explicit. She says that her repenting, verse 22, her 
turning back is a turning back to Yahweh her God. She is coming to Yahweh. Do you remember in chapter 3 and verse 14 where Yahweh says, Return to me for I am your master. And the word there for master is Baal. And that's just the same way that we refer to God as God. It's a title. It's not a name. God is God. And so the same way with Baal. Baal is not the name proper of that God, if you will. It's simply the title that came to be so associated with him that it was regarded as his name. And so Yahweh is saying, he is not master. I am master. And so here is Israel now coming and saying, you are God. You are our God. And those things that are on the hills are a delusion. Truly, they are a lie. Truly, Yahweh, our God. In Him is the salvation of Israel. And whereas Yahweh is their salvation, verse 24, the shameful thing, these idols, have devoured They've devoured flock and herd as they offered up all these sacrifices to these gods. They've just thrown them into a pit of oblivion. They mean nothing. They're they're as empty as the idols they sacrificed them to in their meaning and significance. And not only have, have their flocks and herds been devoured, their sons and daughters as they've offered them up in sacrifice to Molech. And the irony is that these are fertility gods that by worshiping them and by these offerings, abundance and fruitfulness were to be rained down upon the land. Sin promises like the serpent in the garden. The promise is advertised in large print, but it delivers small. And the cost is very tiny. It's the fine print but it comes to dominate the exchange. Sin is shortly sweet in the mouth and forever bitter in the belly. Those who eat sin devour a devourer. It consumes all. It appears that Israel is turning. She's she's repenting. She's turning from worthless and empty idols to that fountain of living waters. It appears that way. But then she says, let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us for the reason that she has sinned. She's with her fathers has disobeyed the voice of Yahweh. What are we to make of this? Surely this is repentance. It sounds extravagant. She's recognizing and owning the shame of her sin. Is this true repentance? Perhaps. But if this is true repentance, it's only the beginning of true repentance. Not because it's not shamed enough, but because shamed is all that it is. If this is true repentance, it's only the beginning, not because it's, sh- it's not shamed enough, but because shamed is all that it is. We see here Israel's recognizing her shame, but though she's spoken of Yahweh as her salvation, does she recognize that? She's recognized her sin, but does she recognize her Savior? She's spoken of returning to Yahweh as her, uh, who is her salvation, 
But if that's true, what would we expect? There would be not only sorrow, there would be joy. There would be shame, but it would come to be expressed as humble gratitude. The deepest conviction of our sin comes not when we wallow in our sin, but when we've beheld the glory of our God. And as part of that glory, the depths of His grace and mercy. Whenever one repents, they turn from their sin and they turn from God. And the only reason you would turn from a God who is altogether holy and righteous is because He's promised grace. And if He has promised grace, and you realize He is greater than you are, you realize not only the infinity of your sin, but the infinity of His grace and mercy to cover it. True repentance is broken and contrite, but it doesn't wallow in sin. It clings to Yahweh, the God of our salvation. The God who has promised that He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast covenant love and faithfulness, forgiving Iniquity and transgression and sin. This is just another way of saying that true repentance is always wed to true faith. Repentance is ashamed of sin, but faith clings and glories in Christ. True repentance doesn't wallow in shame because it is wed to a faith that revels in Christ. True repentance doesn't rest with being covered in shame and dishonor because it clings to Christ who is our righteousness and glory. So does this not help you make sense of why this display of repentance is met with ifs? If You return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as Yahweh lives. Three conditions are put forward. If Yahweh, if they return to Yahweh, if they return, it's to Yahweh they should return, 4 and verse 1. Repentance is never turning from an idol alone because you can turn from one idol to another. Repentance is true whenever it turns to the true God. The second, we're told that this is to be turned from without wavering. Remove the detestable things from my presence and do not waver. Our idols are not to be placed in storage. They're to be placed in an incinerator. Jesus put it this way, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than to be cast into hell with both hands forever. And truly our repentance is never perfect in this life. But it is true. It's marked by what Luther noted as the first of his 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, 
He willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. The saints' repentance isn't perfect and complete and full, but it is true and enduring and persevering. Third and finally, they are to swear, they are to renew their vows, their oaths, and they are to do so in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. Whenever the, the vows of covenant love are renewed by the bride, she is not to do so with her eyes looking to the side, wondering if anyone is beholding her beauty, lusting after others. And if she repents, according to these three ifs, we're told that the nations will bless themselves in Yahweh, and in Him, in Yahweh, they will glory. You remember God promised to Abraham, in you and your offspring, the nations shall be blessed. Are we left now to wonder... Will that promise be? Will the nations be blessed if Israel falters? Hold on to that question. The section comes to a close, verses 3 and 4, with the command now going to Judah and Jerusalem to repent. And this call for them to repent is connected, verse 3, by 4. For thus says Yahweh, So two things I think are happening here. One is you see that everything that's been happening in this this reflection on Israel and her sin is for the purpose that this command come to bear down upon Judah, repent. But then with four, you're expecting this to be given as grounds, as a reason. So is the command to Judah to repent, a grounds for Israel to repent so that the nations glory in Yahweh. Israel, repent in this way so that the nations will glory because Judah, repent. Is there such a connection that the command for Judah to repent serves as a grounds for Israel to repent so that the nations will glory? That's another question to hold on to. So we've got several questions now that have accumulated here. Is Israel's repentance true? That's the biggest one that's being returned to again and again in this. Two, shouldn't God Turn our hearts so that we return? Three, is there any hope for the nations to be blessed? And four, does the command for Judah to repent serve as a grounds for Israel to repent so that the nations are blessed? This command, hold on to all those. This command comes by way of two metaphors. First, Judah is to break up her fallow ground and not so thorns. So imagine this ground that is hard. It hasn't been tilled. And thorns are growing on it. Those are to be removed first, burned. They're to be destroyed before the ground is broken up and good seed planted. Not to just go plowing it so that thorns are sown as well as the seed that will choke up any growth. 
Second, Israel is to circumcise her heart, removing the foreskin of her heart. A circumcision was intended as a sign, and though many, for many ethnic Jews, this sign went no deeper than their epidermis, it was meant to go all the way to the heart. It was meant to communicate something that went all the way to the heart. It was a sign of something true and invisible. We see this in Romans 4.11. Concerning Abraham, we're told he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It was a sign, but it was a sign of something done in Abraham. Earlier in Romans, Paul makes it clear that the circumcision that matters is a matter of the heart. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The striking thing about this language of circumcision of the heart as we read through Scripture is we see this. It's something God does. God is commanding them to do something that He does. Deuteronomy 36, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What's the command of God that He gave to His people in covenant? You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What's the only way they can do what He's commanded? He will circumcise their heart so that they love Him. Colossians 2.11 In Him, in Christ, you, in Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without Hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of the heart is identical to the new heart of the new covenant wherein Jeremiah says in chapter 31, God will write His law on our heart. Or in chapter 32, he says he will give them one heart and one way that they may fear him. Or as Ezekiel unfolds the same new covenant promise, God will remove a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And so, repentance is both something we do and something God does in us. We repent because God has granted repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 God speaks of granting repentance. Acts 5.31 Peter declares, God exalted Him, Christ, at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The work of Christ as it was accomplished was for the purpose that the gift of repentance could be given to the Israel of God. So we repent, but we repent because God gives repentance. 
And did you catch that in Acts? He, he exalted Christ so that he could give repentance to Israel. So this command, as it's given here, is not an empty one. It's a command, as Augustine says, God commands what He wills, but He wills what He commands. As this command to repent goes out to the true Israel, to the church, to the bride, to the elect, as it goes out, it creates what it commands. It's a command like, let there be light. And there's light. And He says, repent. And to those He's intended, those for whom Christ died and now sits in glory at the right hand of the Father, for those there is repentance in the command. And so that being true, do you see how this command then can serve as a basis for Israel repent because so repent so that the nations will glory in Yahweh because God commands repentance. I think this grounds can be true in two ways. One, it's true because Jesus is the servant of Yahweh. He is the true Israel who lives in obedience to His Father so that the nations might be blessed. He's the offspring of Abraham. But it's also true in that He creates His holy bride, the true Israel, the church, through whom the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, gathering in His elect. And so God does turn our hearts before we turn. There is a link of grounds between verses 2 and 3. And thus there is a certain hope of the nations being blessed. We've got one question. The major question, the the burdensome question of this text, is Israel's repentance true? And you're given no answer. Because you as the reader are meant to be put in the position of Judah with the command lying on your shoulders, repent. In light of the whole message of Jeremiah, we recognize this, if we are to vow in love, covenant unto Yahweh, it is only because He has first vowed unto us in the new covenant by the blood of Christ, making us new, turning our hearts towards Him. As Thomas Brooks says, repentance is a flower that grows not in nature's soil. The soil of man's heart is naturally hard, stony, and thorny. If there is any repentance, if any vows are made on our part, it's because His vows have created Hours in response. So does Israel repent? If by Israel you mean the church, 
the true Israel, circumcised in the heart, His elect, His bride, by that you mean? You're asking this question, does Israel repent? Most assuredly so. Because He purchased her with His blood and gives her repentance. And so I leave you with the promise of Galatians 6, 15 and 16. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, a new heart. And as for all who walk by this rule, that it's not something done with our hands, but something God does in Christ. He says, for all who walk by this rule, to all who truly repent because of God's grace and mercy, hear this promise. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Let's pray. Father, we have all come heeding Your command to come because that command was loaded with grace as powerful as we see whenever You spoke into existing existence things that were not. We've come because of omnipotent, sovereign grace that granted repentance. And so we glorify You. We honor You. We praise You. You are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And we ask that we would have a humble gratitude that would be desirous to see the nations, all peoples whom you've determined be gathered in as your bride. And I pray that we would be faithful to herald the message of Christ as the means of doing so without any compromise declaring repent or you will perish. And that we would be good pastors and shepherds in this way, every one of us in this way. And that we would tell them it is not the display of repentance that saves, it is repentance that saves. And so that they would lean not upon themselves, but even in their repentance, they would realize that they are abandoned upon you and you alone for their salvation. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.